ever since Satan fell from his privileged position in the heavenly places, he has led an incessant war against God, God's truth, God's people. God cannot be moved off of his throne, so you wonder where his rebellion is leading in his mind. But still, he's tried to rally as many spirits, as many humans as he can against God and God's work. The Apostle Paul speaks of many schemes of the devil in Ephesians 6. His first and primary tool, however, is to turn hearts away from God by the means of slander. Slander. First, he questions the veracity of God's word. Second, he attacks the good character and name of God. We talked about the beautiful name and we sang about the beautiful name of Jesus. He wants that name to be drug in the mud. In fact, the name devil means, I don't know if you know this or not, slanderer. That's what he does. I mean, a carpenter does carpentry work and the devil does slander. In John 8, 44, it says of Satan, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and a father and the father of lies. We see the imitation of Satan in Scripture when one person slanders or urges slander upon another after Job's many sufferings while he was trying to keep to his righteousness in Job 2.9, Job's wife walked up to him and said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And you know who was behind that. Joseph was slandered by Potiphar's wife in Egypt when he refused to lie with her. And he was falsely accused, Genesis 39.18. Naboth, a righteous man, was slandered by false witnesses and then murdered by Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 21 just to give the king some land that he sinfully coveted. Of course, the Lord Jesus was slandered in his healing ministry. He was healing people. Those that were not following him had to have a reason why they were not following this man who was doing so many miracles, obvious miracles. Instead of saying, no, 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 he's not really doing miracles, they said he casts out demons by what? The power of Beelzebul, right? The prince of the demons. Jesus instantly, by the way, and very skillfully defended his own name and defended his own integrity, and he said, if Satan casts out Satan, then his kingdom is divided against itself. It won't stand. In John 10, 31, it reads, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these good works are you stoning me? See how he defended his character? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Never let it be said that Jesus did not claim to be God. The Jews said he was blaspheming God by claiming to be God, but they were blaspheming him because he really was God. Paul was slandered in Acts 21, 27 and following, accused of wrongdoing to the Jewish temple. Paul's gospel was slandered, forcing Paul to defend it in Romans 3, 8, where he wrote, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then he adds, their condemnation is just. 
During the great seven-year tribulation in the end times, in Revelation 13, verses 5 through 6, it tells us the Antichrist, the beast, the man of sin, will do this. Verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. That final evil ruler will display the full heart and mindset and desire of Satan to blaspheme God openly and directly. We already see the spirit of the Antichrist at work in our country today. Today we see many American leaders and politicians in the media and movies slandering all things related to the Bible and the Christian faith. Satan loves that. He loves to slander God. He hates God. He hates the Bible. He hates the people of God. He hates what you're doing this morning. The more he can smear the character of God and God's people, the better it is for him. Slander against God happens whenever God's name is taken in vain. But really more than that, slander happens when people bow down before idols and say that that is God and they demean the infinite and holy character of God. They reduce him to an image of a cow or a man. Slander happens when God's universe is said to create itself and that there is no God. Slander happens when men take credit for the things in their lives and don't give thanks to God. All these and more are evidence that slander is inside the human heart and then it comes out. What is slander exactly? Well, in English, Webster's defines it this way, a false tale or report maliciously uttered, tending to injure the reputation of another, the malicious utterance of defamatory reports, the dissemination of malicious tales or suggestions to the injury of another. Notice even suggestions. Slander is akin to gossip, and the scripture often couples them and condemns them together. Speaking of the subtleties of various kinds of slander, Dr. John Piper writes on his Desiring God website in a really good article called Lay Aside the Weight of Slander, He writes, sometimes saying something untrue and damaging about someone is bold and blunt, but often slander is insidiously subtle, especially since we have heard slander all our lives in almost every context and grown accustomed to it. What an insight. We're so accustomed to slander, we don't get bothered by it anymore. The news media constantly presents negative information about people which later often is proven either to be completely false or to have been exaggerated or misunderstood or imbalanced. That's slander. That's slander of people's righteous character. But because they promote it hour after hour, day after day, everyone says, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? They did such-and-such. But it's not true. There's no firsthand information about it. Americans have grown accustomed to gossip and to slander, but they are twin evils that Christians, you and I, need to shun. You and I need to be guard against it. You and I ought not to be the ones that transmit any form of slander or of gossip. Indeed, slander is a form of stealing. Proverbs 22.1 declares, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. You know how hard it is to gain and keep 
a good name, a good reputation. Slander steals that reputation from that person, which is more important to him or her than gold and silver. Dr. Piper again explains, so whenever we handle a person's name, who they are in the minds of other people, we are stewarding a treasure that belongs to them. If we damage a person's reputation unjustly, we are stealing their good name. We are vandalizing their character. And he's right. That's why in James 4, 11 and 12, it commands, do not speak against a brother. Speaking against a brother would include prejudicial comments, unwarranted conclusions, criticisms which have some degree of validity but are far too severe, casting aspersions on people's motives we cannot know anything about, spreading unproven accusations, forwarding emails, or retweeting something negative about another that you have no way of knowing is factual, liking something on Facebook. You don't even know enough about it to know if it's true. Why are you liking it? Social media can degenerate into the gossip media, the slander media. Galatians 5.15 warns of biting and devouring one another. Often that is done electronically. People can't stand in front of someone else and face them with the truth. So they run, they get on the internet, and they slander. That's what they do. Why is slander such a big deal? Why is it so evil? Well, for starters, as we already said, it imitates the character of Satan. One of the Ten Commandments was designed to guard against a good man's reputation. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That would be to slander him, his actions. It's a scary And a hurtful thing to have others sully your reputation. If you've been through it, you know exactly what I mean. No one needs to say a thing to you. You spend a life building good character, day after day, week after week, living your life before others, doing what is right, and then one foolish verbal tornado comes in and tears down everything that you've built up. And it doesn't matter if it's true. It just matters that people heard it and they might think it's half true. It happens in the workplace and destroys your career. It could happen in your extended family. You merely try to outreach to people and love them, and they assign some motive to you. They categorize you. They put a label towards you, and they slander you. It can happen in your church. The destruction of your good name is so bad, Psalm 27, 12 prays, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witness have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence. Sometimes it leads to hurt, physical hurt to people. Proverbs 25, 18 says that slander is is like a club and, and a sword and a sharp arrow. What does that mean? It hurts. The old proverb, sticks and stones, they break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is brave indeed, but not entirely true. False words can penetrate deeply and false words can spread broadly. They can sully the otherwise stellar reputation of another. Defamation of character brings with it great sorrow, possibly tangible losses as well. That is why slander, a false witness, 
is one of the things it states in Proverbs 6.19 that God hates. He hates it. In Proverbs 19.5, it adds, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. It'll catch up with them eventually. Unfortunately, a lie can take on a life of its own like a balloon, but eventually that balloon just deflates and you realize it didn't have much in it after all. Proverbs 16.28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates friends. What does that mean? He whispers a little bit of information that's negative about another, but not sure that it's true, and it puts a thought in someone's mind, and now they're not as close as they used to be, you see. Slander becomes a divisive, hurtful thing. It can tear friendships apart. It it can confuse those who are standing around and wondering, hey, what's going on? Is there something to this? What poison there is in slander? No wonder the enemy of the church loves to use it. And how it deters and sidetracks the mission of the church. It is no wonder then that one of the men we just saw appointed by the apostles as one of the seven who had stellar reputation, who would have such a crucial role in helping the church keep its unity and even to spread the gospel, would be attacked by the devil and the devil's dogs. And we turn today to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and read of the slander of Stephen, the slander of Stephen. Verse 8, I'll begin reading. Please follow along. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some men from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. When they secretly induced, then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Amazing. This text helps us to see that we should be on guard against the slander of the brethren, particularly church leaders, and not only not participate in spreading it, but expose it for what it is, evil. Slander is the very breath of the devil. We learn this hard lesson of Satan's tactic in three stages. First, we see the building up of Stephen's character. And second, we see the tearing down of Stephen's character. And lastly, we see that God was helping to establish Stephen's character. First, the building up of Stephen's character. Look back at verses 8 through 10. It talks about Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And then it talks about their debate in verses 9 and the wisdom with which they're not able to cope with that Stephen had by the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 10. Listen, Stephen had lived a whole life up to this point in time. 
We know nothing about his early life and all that he did, but think about it. He's lived his entire life up to this point in time. This is the end of his life. This is the last day of his life. This is it for him. He spent all that time and that energy working on his character. Whatever he did early and follies that he had, he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he'd been working on being sanctified and holy and learning to speak the truth and doing what was right, hard work. The apostles had agreed with with all of the, the people in the congregation, the believers, that this was one of the seven who had such stellar character, such obviously good character that he was to be chosen one of the seven to help with this great need of making sure there was the unified treatment of all the widows that we looked at before. And they appointed him. They laid their hands on him. They were not ashamed to do that and put their hands on him and transferred authority and power to him from their hands. And we saw about that in the previous passage. Stephen was well respected by everybody. Common believers loved him. The leaders loved him. They thought he was great. Already back in verse 5, if you glance back there, we learned that he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He believed God. He acted on faith. He lived his life in genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not one of those that just talked the talk. He walked the walk. The Holy Spirit characterized his dealings with others. They could see he was peaceable. He was gentle. He was thinking about the things of Christ. He prioritized his life properly. Unlike thousands, I assume, that surrounded him in Jewish society, he was not a liar. He was not rebellious towards God and his word. He wasn't a drunkard. He didn't drink too much sweet wine. He didn't pilfer money for himself. He didn't curse with his mouth. He was a solid man, a solid Christian. It's the kind of guy that Psalm 15 talks about. Oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. And it goes on with many other wonderful attributes. That was Stephen. Here it even adds that he was full of grace. That means he was full of the Lord's grace. And that divinely given grace had effect on his life. And, and that grace worked on him so that he could be a blessing to others, full of grace. He knew he was a man that was saved by grace. He didn't trust in his own righteousness. He wasn't like the proud religionists of the day, and I would add today, who think that they're good in and of themselves, that they've done good works. So often even those outside of the church, they want to promote what wonderful things they did, what charities they gave for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Look at me. See what a wonderful and benevolent and charitable person I am. What a magnanimous spirit I have towards other people. And they put it out there. I've given so much money to such and such. And it's about them and their righteousness. Stephen wanted not to talk about his righteousness, but the grace that was shown him in Jesus Christ. He didn't give himself credit for things. Any goodness that was in him, he, def- he reflected that glory back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew he had undeserved credit from God and that God's lovely grace deserved the praise. Furthermore, the presence of God at work in his life was even buttressed by the miracles and signs that were coming from his hands. Please note that these signs, these miracles that Stephen was doing here, these great miracles were not done until the apostles laid their hands on the seven and then he had this ability and power. That proves again the power was not Stephen's. It came from the apostles and the apostles got their their power and their anointing from who? From Christ, right? It's Christ who poured out the Holy Spirit. It's Christ who baptized the church with the Holy Spirit as John the Baptist had predicted. 
His ministry then was to be viewed as an extension of the apostolic witness of Christ. He wasn't the primary eyewitness. He may never have even seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not the actual eyewitness, but it was an extension of the apostle. He worked as an assistant to the apostles in that church, and it's the apostles who were the eyewitnesses. This is in part why we mentioned that these seven shouldn't just be thought of as deacons. They, they sort of were prototypes of deacons, but they did work well beyond that which would be typically assigned to a deacon. Here we see them preaching and evangelizing and even performing miracles. It was a public teaching ministry that he had. The Holy Spirit had so gifted him and unleashed that along with being buttressed by these miracles that would point attention back to him and he would point back to the apostles. This leads us to consider one more aspect of Stephen's character. One, actually, I think that's accentuated in the passage, the one that we're to think about the most here, and that is that as Stephen was teaching in the synagogues, as he was arguing and debating, they realized this man is full of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Stephen had been debating. Stephen had been teaching. He was in the synagogues. This was one of the Hellenistic Jews' synagogues. It was a Greek-speaking synagogue. And it had some believers in Jesus and it had some that were not believers in Jesus. Evidently, the majority still did not believe in Jesus. It's called the synagogue of the freed man. And people speculate why that. Maybe from the slaves who were later freed and now part of the synagogue. Dr. Daryl Bach conjectures that, quote, these slaves may have descended from the Jews imprisoned by Pompey in 63 B.C. and then later were freed. There are four destinations or source places that are represented here. The Cyrenians are from northern Africa. The Alexandrians are also from Egypt, which is in Africa. It appears that a fewer number here were from Cilicia, around the Turkey region, and Asia. When you see Asia there, that doesn't mean the continent of Asia. That means the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, much, much, much smaller than the continent. Actually, just a portion of modern-day Turkey. And they had come. They'd come to Jerusalem. They'd started a synagogue. Synagogues were important to the Jews. They were centers of learning, centers of teaching, centers of worship. They would read the scriptures much like we've done here. And then they would talk about it and debate it. Please notice at this stage, Christianity wasn't even called Christianity. And it hadn't even moved out of the synagogue. It hadn't moved out of the temple. It was still very much intertwined with Judaism. All the earlier earliest followers of Jesus were Jews. And so having a debate in a synagogue about Yeshua, Jesus, who was also a Jew, was certainly not surprising. Many of these Greek-speaking Jews were not believers in Jesus, and they decided to rise up and argue against Stephen. This doesn't mean that they were having a loud or an angry argument, or it could have, it could have been that, but it refers to some form of formal debate where one would stand up and present a case and another one would stand up and contradict it. The other person would refute it and it would go back and forth and leaders and good teachers would be, would be debating and the rest of the people would be listening and trying to make up their mind about things. These were Jews who thought that this new branch of Judaism that emerged, these followers of the Nazarene, that they were something novel. They were even a heresy. Why were there so many Jews following after them? They didn't believe that that was right, and they wanted to stop the movement, and they, they tried to use reason to talk people away from faith in Jesus. They're changing the customs of Moses. Moses is a solid man from God. We know God has spoken to Moses. Who is this Nazarene? But Stephen believed Christianity should be properly defended 
There is a reason to stand up and argue as a godly man, and he's doing it here. He gave a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. By the way, we should not think that Christianity spread fluidly everywhere in the Roman Empire in the first century. It often was opposed, just as it is now. We start to do something and we're opposed and we think, oh, that's too hard, I'm going to quit. It was hard back then, guys. It was hard back then. This also reminds us if you want to be a good man or a good woman, you want to stand up and teach the truth, you want to witness to the gospel, there will invariably be out there Satan's dogs. And they will oppose you. They will even cry you down. Be ready for it. Stephen was ready for it. Here we see that a man steeped in Holy Scripture receives the power of the Holy Spirit upon him to give him even increased wisdom to deal with all of the misunderstandings and the twisted arguments that would be thrown at him on the spot. And he was able, by the Spirit and the Scriptures, to argue effectively. By the way, don't read this as an excuse that you don't need to pour years of study into the Bible and into Scriptures. Don't think that he just stood up there and he got zapped with a bunch of knowledge. In the speech that follows in chapter 7, it's quite obvious that Stephen knows by heart large portions of Israel's history. And that's a big book there in the Old Testament, right? And he was studying a lot of it and reading it. And he was able also to draw spiritual lessons from it. He'd meditated on it. He got the meaning of it. He didn't just recount the history, the cold history. He was able to draw spiritual lessons from it. Wisdom from the Holy Spirit does not come osmosis when you lay your head on the pillow. It doesn't come by mysticism. It doesn't come with instant downloads. You have to study. You have to study the Holy Spirit's book, the inspired page. If you want the Spirit's wisdom, you want to be a man or woman like that that can speak and can anticipate this argument and that and see what's wrong with this, you have to spend your life studying. That's what he had done. He had studied. Like Psalm 119, 97 to 100. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. He not only learned them, he obeyed them, and from the obeying of them, he learned more about what wisdom was. Verse 10 shows that if the playing field was actually level, which it wasn't here, then those who support false teaching cannot win. When you're playing a game and you realize you can't win, what do you do? If you're evil, you cheat. They talk and they assert things under closer examination. All of their beliefs could be shown to be a misunderstanding Wore down the batteries. Better than my throat giving out, I guess. Secondly, the tearing down of Stephen's character in verses 11 through 14. Let's read that again. Then they secretly introduced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. See? And then they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place. Look at their feigned love for God, right? And the law, but they're not keeping the law, right? They're about to slander and and go against one of the Ten Commandments. 
Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, remember how Jesus was referred to, this Nazarene from the city of Nazareth, Jesus will destroy this place, the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. That's a half-truth. Well, the cheating and the tearing down of Stephen's character starts in verse 11. The they there probably refers to the ones in the synagogue who were debating him and had enough of him. They had to shut him up. They couldn't cope with his wisdom from the scriptures. They, they may have been religious, but they were not interpreting the scriptures consistently and fairly. And, he, and Stephen's insight to the scriptures were exposing that. That's just like many today who read their Bibles and teach the Bibles. But they're blind because of their prejudices that they bring to the Bible. Well, the Bible can't be teaching that because we know that would be wrong. And so they don't listen to what the Bible's actually saying. They try to morph the Bible into what it is that they believe rather than changing what they believe based upon the rock of the Bible. They're arrogant because they want to twist God's word, control God's word, make them say what he didn't actually say. Much more humble to say, let the word of God speak, change your theology, change your practices, change your beliefs, mature and grow and become more understanding of God because you've heard the word, you see. They wouldn't want to do that. They didn't like that. The more they talked, the more they stood up. It was obvious. One guy stands up, he can't cope with them. Another guy gives a try, he can't cope with them. A third guy stands up and he can't seem to stop Stephen either. Nobody can stop this guy. So they went the route of plotting behind closed doors. They put forward some false witnesses who would twist Stephen's words leading to his demise. Notice they were given the script of their acting. It's all untrue here. This is what you say. Hardly from the heart. And they knew it, by the way. Do evil men care at all about the nuances of teaching? I meant this. No, I didn't mean that. Here's what I meant. They don't care about any of that. They just want to take whatever word they can, pull it out of context and say, He said such and such. That's terrible. Like I said, they do that on the media all the time. Goodness gracious, be alert to that. It's out there all the time. Pulling three words. They said this. It's ridiculous. Evil men don't care. What was the meaning? What was the context? What was the flow of thought? Did he use the word this way or that way? What does he mean? I'd like to know what you understand. Let's have a good conversation about things. Let's try to understand one another. None of that with evil men. None. Have you ever had your words twisted? Maybe it's your husband or your wife. No, I didn't mean that. It's not what I said. You sit there and give a very careful understanding of what the children are allowed to do and not to do, and they run off saying, Dad says we can do such and such. <laughs> no. Stephen was not speaking against Moses, the temple. He was backing up what Moses had already told the Israelites. One day would, a prophet would come, would be greater than Moses, and you were to give heed to him. That prophet came. The prophet came and everyone should have known the signs and miracles were by the thousands. Stephen's message was similar to what Jesus had spoken in Matthew 5, 17. In the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. Yes, it means it's brought to an end because it's fulfilled. But that doesn't mean it's evil or bad. It served its purpose. Paul wrote that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of Moses and brought it to an end. He said, for Christ, this is Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The time of Moses' law had come to an end. Not because it was bad. Not because it was wrong. 
Indeed, the law of Moses, as it is worded in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Nothing wrong with the law of Moses. But the time of the law and the time of the temple had come to an end. Why? Because something greater was there. Speaking of himself, Jesus said in Matthew 12.6, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Do you know what he was referring to? Himself. But they twisted Stephen's words. He opposes Moses. He opposes the temple. He twisted words. That's slander. That's evil. That is not tolerated in the church of God. Psalm 101.5, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Matthew 15.19, Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. This is why we as new creations in Christ are exhorted in Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, the next step in this devious scheme is seen in verse 12. They spread the slander. They stirred up the popular opinion against Stephen based upon the slander. Stirred up shows that this is more of a mob influence by misguided zeal than careful and deliberative thought. From this we learn that because human nature is inclined toward evil and not toward good, it is easily swayed. There's a reason why gossip and slander work so well as a tool of Satan. Men and women love it. We love to hear how someone we don't like has something wrong with them. I knew there was something wrong with that teacher. I knew that neighbor was doing something bad down there. We love to hear that information with the people we don't like. When it's our friends, we say it can't be. When it's someone we really don't kind of like, we're like, yeah, you got a good point there. We're inclined to tear one another down. Particularly the world is inclined to tear down anyone that is good and righteous. Why? Because their righteous life and their righteous words condemn the way they live. Do you not realize that on that day of judgment, many of you will be called to come into the courtroom and to bear witness against your neighbors that you witnessed to? Did you ever witness to so-and-so? Yeah, actually I did. And what was their response? They rejected Jesus Christ. They know that. They sense that. Their conscience condemns them. It's sort of the, the, the thunder of the approaching judgment of God. That's their conscience now. And you remind them of it. So they've got to shut us up. It's very easy to produce a very bad forest fire if all of the wood is dry. Right? You flick a match on a rainy day, it doesn't do anything. You flick it when everything is dry and you get California. And that's what happens. Slander spreads like a wildfire. All this slander spread, and it leads to a good man's arrest in verse 12. They grabbed him, physically took control of him, dragged him before the same council that had just finished flogging the 12 apostles. In verse 13, the false witnesses bring up their lies and their half-truth. Notice witnesses. You've got, you got to have two of them because we have to keep the law. Every fact has to be confirmed by what? Two or three witnesses, right? So we'll put two up there, try to work on their coordination, get them coordinated, 
And, of course, no one really wants to cross-examine them carefully because they want to get rid of this movement anyways. So they keep the letter of the law while breaking the whole spirit of the law. What hypocrites. The accusation of Jesus tearing down the temple had already been leveled against Jesus, and it was misunderstood. It it twisted Jesus' meanings. Actually, it's answered in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It explains it this way. The Jews then said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, his resurrected body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. But they twisted Stephen's words also. So what is a good man to do? When he has built up his reputation all of his life, he's worked hard, he's done what is right. Even when no one is looking, he's doing the right thing and he's doing it so that he may be rewarded by God. He doesn't care whether or not people know where he's giving. He doesn't care whether or not they know the charitable deeds that someone is doing. He doesn't care whether or not someone knows the nice things that they did in church. They're just doing it, right? They treat others well. They speak the truth to their own hurt. You spend your whole life doing that. What's the reward for that? What are you supposed to do when you do all of that? And someone steps in with the breath of Satan on him and tries to tear down your character. What are they supposed to do? What would you do? What would you do? You'd have to defend your character. You'd have to speak and explain yourself. And trust that there's enough righteous people out there that understand, enough people with good judgment to understand what is true and what is a lie. That's what you'd have to do. But what if they don't understand? What if it spreads anyways? What if your character gets completely ruined by two fools? Well, next we see God's help of Stephen's character. This is subtle, but I want you to see this. It's in verse 15. And fixing their gaze on him, this is the council now sitting there and watching him. All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. You say, that's pretty. No, I think it means more than that. First of all, I don't think angels were pretty. And it's Christmas time, I'm about to get into my lecture about all the pretty little angels and stuff like that. I'm not going to do that. I don't have enough time. You know, angels were warlike. They were fierce. They came from the holy presence of God. They probably didn't have much of a smile on their face. They were warriors and soldiers, young men, strong, fearful. Roman soldiers shook when they saw one. I think this is recorded to remind us that God had not forsaken Stephen, but was empowering Stephen inwardly as he faced this travesty of justice. His face looked to everyone in the room like an angel. What does that mean? Did it actually shine? It might have. There's a parallel with Moses. Remember, he came down from the presence of God off Mount Sinai, and his face shone. You remember that? Why? Because he was in the presence of God. Why do angels shine? Because they're in the presence of God. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, it says in 1 John chapter 1. It could just mean that his face, his countenance was so clear, his conscience was so clear His resolve was so strong. His eyes were an open window into his soul that he knew he'd done nothing wrong. His gaze was unflinching. 
It struck them that the way he stood, the way he was bold and brave and knowledgeable and straightforward, there was no crookedness in him at all, unlike others around him. Can you tell that from a countenance and a face? Sometimes yes, sometimes yes. They say wear a good countenance because that's the most important thing you'll put on each day. He had a great one here. Either way, this speaks to the assistance of God to this man in the climactic moment of his life. The last hours of his life upon earth, right before a magnificent speech that reviews truths of the Old Testament scriptures, God was with him. Like many other men and women down through church history, here stands a believer all by himself, torn down by false witnesses, but not alone. God is so good. When we're fearful what might happen in the future, we need to remember that hasn't happened yet. When you get there, if you get there, you know who will be there with you? The Lord God Almighty, and he's a faithful God. And he will empower you. He will strengthen you and help you to know what to say and give you the courage in that moment. And you'll be like, wow, with God's wind at my back, it wasn't as hard as I thought. God stands with Stephen. The scene screams of injustice and hypocrisy. Yet here God empowers his man. This world seems so unfair. It seems that way because it is. It is unfair. How can a righteous man combat or deal with slander? Well, the Bible gives the answer. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. He means unbelievers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Second coming, Christ. In other words, they're slandering you and slandering you, but they just keep watching your character and eventually they realize, I need to join this guy's side. His behavior is so good. Remember one of the thieves on the side of Christ, right? Hurling abuse at him. One just kept hurling. I guess he never learned, right? The other guy was hurling it, hurling somewhere in the midst of that he realized he's innocent. We're guilty. And he turned to Christ and said, what? Remember me, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Say, who wears, where is the blessing in that? It's one of the worst things that can happen in life to have your whole reputation tear, torn down by someone else. Jesus said, blessed are you. And then he went on, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. God knows it all, and he will reward it. Ultimately, we have to leave all things in the hands of a good God who will bring all actions and words and motives to judgment. God is your defense. Christ is your defense attorney at the right hand of God in heaven. What should you do when people bring information to you that is negative of another. Listen, if you're not part of the solution, don't become part of the problem. Guard your brother's reputation like a treasure. 
then how will we ever know if someone actually has done something wrong and the accusation against a man is true or false? That's why Jesus gave us guidelines. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put him out. If you follow the pathway of truth and mercy as this outlines, each person's reputation will be guarded until the facts prove he is a liar and a scoundrel. Then and only then may the church make his deeds and his sin known publicly. That's why we have Titus chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11, to make public the sins of leaders if the facts confirm it. This is the surest and the safest way for a church that loves the truth and loves the people to operate. In Romans 14, 19, it says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Akin to this is the injunction in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Back to Dr. Piper's article again. He says, Satan knows that slander deadens and splits churches, poisons friendships, and fractures families. He knows slander quenches the Holy Spirit, kills love, short-circuits spiritual renewal, undermines trust, and sucks the courage out of the saints. So our goal, he writes, particularly in the context of the church, is to help each other shed demonic weights and avoid satanic stumbling blocks, end quote. Beloved, I would close by saying this. If you have spoken against somebody... If you have whispered against a brother, if you have passed on information that you do not know is true and is negative about someone else, you have a duty, you have a command from God to go to that person and ask that person's forgiveness. May God teach us all the value of each other's reputation. Thank you, Lord Christ, for your beautiful name. And though your name is slandered, it is the most beautiful. And we know that there are so many because they watch the news and they watch movies and they watch TV programs and your name is slandered all over the place and your followers are always made to look in the worst possible light. It's no wonder people have a hard time turning to believe in your son now. But we know the truth about you. There is no one more beautiful than you. And we are here to announce, again, your reputation and your glory. Hallelujah, Lord. You are the greatest and the purest and the most wonderful. It is in your name we have preached and in your name we have prayed. Amen.